Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to John chapter 8, verses 37 through 47. I am preaching through the Gospel of John, if you're visiting with us, and I just take the next section every week. Some sections are easier to swallow, some are more difficult. This one sticks like a chicken bone in our throats, but we're going to look at it. And I pray the Lord will use it uh, to refine us and teach us truth. So let's read John 8. We're going to read from verses 37 through 47. John 8, verse 37. Remember, this is the word of God, inspired and inerrant. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. You know, the testimony of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, recorded in the New Testament, It reveals him to be a perfect man. He had impeccable character. He associated with all kinds of people without showing partiality. He was just and compassionate in all of his dealings. He was appropriately discreet, but he spoke the truth with boldness. His teaching was simple, but profound and penetrating. And he performed many miracles that were both undeniable and also incredible. He healed every kind of disease, cast out demons from people, raised people from the dead. And he even exercised authority over the created order itself. He turned water to wine. He multiplied loaves of bread. He caused fish to swim into the net of fishermen. He commanded the wind and the waves of the sea to be still. Yes, Jesus made some very remarkable claims about himself. He claimed to be the Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament. And he even claimed to be the divine son of God. But it's not as if these claims came in a vacuum, like the guy standing on the street corner with a big sign. No, he backed them all up with his incomparably righteous life, his wise teaching, his powerful acts. Yet despite all of this, Jesus was not very well received on the whole. It's true According to the eyewitnesses in the gospel, their accounts written in the gospels, 
Large crowds did follow him around, especially when they heard about his miracles. And many people said they believed he must be a prophet or even the Messiah. But for most people, their faith in Jesus was relatively superficial. A much smaller number became devoted followers, and many of those fell away over time. The rest, including the vast majority of religious and political leaders in Israel, did not believe in Jesus. Indeed, they concluded that he was a dangerous man, a fraud who was leading the people astray and needed to be eliminated. So after three short years of incredible public ministry, Jesus was arrested He was condemned by his fellow Jews as a blasphemer. And then they in turn persuaded the Roman authorities to execute him by way of crucifixion as a treasonous criminal with the support of riotous crowds. And this, I think, leads us to ask, why? Why did so many people reject Jesus And even respond to him with such hatred and violence. And why was that response not just in his day, but why does it continue down through the generations until today? Oh, I realize many people reject Jesus out of ignorance. That is, they simply don't know what the New Testament actually says about him. And so they reject a caricature of him that they have heard from other people. And I realize that much of the hatred and the hostility that there is in the world today toward Jesus is rooted in long-standing ethnic and political tensions rather really than anything the New Testament says about Jesus. I also realize that many people reject Jesus because of the very real misbehavior of those who identify as his followers. And yet, despite all of this, it is still the case that many people refuse to believe in Jesus and even react with animosity toward him when they hear an accurate presentation of what the New Testament says about him, or they read it for themselves. And I would venture to say that pretty much everyone in this room has probably watched that happen on many occasions over the years as you have told people about Jesus. What explains this widespread reaction to hearing about a man whose life and ministry were so wonderful and credible? Well, there are many answers to that question. But this text that we've come to this morning in John 8 gives us at least one answer, perhaps the most fundamental. Now, throughout John chapters 7 and 8, Jesus, you remember, if you've been with us through this series, he was in Jerusalem for a feast, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And for most of these two chapters, he has been teaching the crowd of Jews there for the feast in the temple. And the reaction to him has been mixed. Some believed in him. Others did not. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. It says that repeatedly in the chapter. And as he continued to talk with the crowds, what we see is their hostility toward him grew as well. And in our text, John 8, 37-47, Jesus now explained the reason for their rejection and hostility. Let's walk through these verses together. Let's see what Jesus said on this matter of why people reject him and are even hostile to him when they hear his words. And then we'll just consider, what does this mean for our lives today? Now, as we come to verse 37, that's where I started, 
we have to remember that we are picking up in the middle of a broader discussion between Jesus and the Jews in the temple at the Feast of Booths. In the previous section, Jesus had told the crowds that only those who were truly his disciples would then know the truth which would set them free. And you remember that the Jews had balked at the suggestion that they were slaves who needed to be set free. That they didn't have some truth that would set them free. And you remember that in verse 33, they told Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. In other words, as the physical descendants of Abraham, they were God's old covenant people. They were the heirs of his promises. They weren't slaves. They already had all the truth they needed, they thought. Now, down in verse 37, Jesus now circles back. He reflects on this claim that they had made in verse 33 that I just mentioned. And he says this, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. In other words, Jesus acknowledged that, yes, these Jews to whom he was speaking were physical descendants of Abraham, and yet their behavior was in tension with that identity because their hearts were hard and resistant to his word. His word made no progress in their hearts. And instead of believing in him, they were seeking to kill him. Then in verse 38, Jesus hinted that although Abraham was their physical father, their behavior indicated that their spiritual father, if you will, was actually someone else, someone other than Abraham. And so in verse 38, he said, I speak of what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Notice first that striking claim that Jesus made about himself. He, he's always doing this in John's gospel, especially, but in the other gospels as well. He called God his father, and he implied by saying that, that he was God's son in some unique way. Your average Jew would never speak of God that way. And also he claimed to have been with God at some point in the past so that now he could speak about God from firsthand experience. I speak of what I have seen with the Father. Now, if you are visiting with us this morning, and perhaps you're not familiar with this kind of material about Jesus, and you find it hard to believe that Jesus would really say that about himself. Could that be what he means? I just want to encourage you. This is great that you're wondering that. Go home, read the rest of this book. The Gospel of John is full of such claims like this by Jesus. In fact, the book opens by saying that Jesus is God, and that even though he created the world in the beginning, he entered into his creation as a man. And it calls him the monogenes, only begotten son of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us so that we might see what God is like through him. Now, if you find that fantastic and you don't believe that that could possibly be in this book, Go read it for yourself. It's all right there. Just start in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. You'll see it right there. Now, after making these lofty claims about himself, which could only have irritated the Jews all the more, I speak of what I have seen with my father, he then went on to make a very different assessment of them to whom he's speaking. He says, and you do what you have heard from your father. So notice the contrast. Jesus' father was God. Jesus had been with God and now spoke about God from firsthand experience. The Jews had a different father than Jesus. 
And when they refused to believe Jesus' words, but instead were seeking to kill him, they were following the word of their father, not God. Now, of course, at this point, Jesus, you notice, did not identify who their father was. He just made clear it wasn't God. God was his father. Their father was someone else, someone who had led them to reject Jesus and to seek to kill him. Now, you have to think they are shocked, they are offended at this suggestion, and it says in verse 39 that the Jews answered him, saying, Abraham is our father. Now, since Jesus had already acknowledged back in verse 37 that they were Abraham's offspring, you would think he would agree with them here when they said, Abraham is our father. But he didn't. Because while it was true, as he had said before, that Abraham was their father in a physical sense, yet in the more important spiritual sense, he was not their father. And Jesus explained why in the rest of verses 39 all the way through the beginning of verse 41. There we read, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You can see his basic argument there, can't you? It's it's pretty clear. Jesus is saying that the works of these Jews revealed who their true father was. Children do the same kinds of things that their father does. So if Abraham was their father, they would do the same kinds of things as Abraham did. But they were seeking to kill him, a man who had told them truth from God, and that was not something that Abraham would do, who was himself, after all, a true prophet of God. So their works reveal that Abraham was not their father in this ultimate sense, as they claimed. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul would develop this same kind of argument as Jesus did here in his letters. So, for instance, in Romans 6, or Romans 9, 6 through 7, he, he made this provocative statement. He said, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, if you were to go back into the letter, back in chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, he explained that God had made Abraham, quote, the father of the circumcised, that is, the father of the Jews, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then he went on to say in verse 17, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is a father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Okay. Paul's point in all of that, I think, was that the offspring of Abraham to whom God's promise belonged ultimately did not consist of every physical descendant of Abraham, but only those who shared Abraham's faith, that is, Jews who shared Abraham's faith, and also believing Gentiles as well. This is why Paul pointed out that God said Abraham would be the father of many nations. So Paul, like Jesus, was not denying that Jews were physical descendants of Abraham. He was simply denying that physical lineage 
made you a descendant of Abraham with respect to the promises of God. The offspring of Abraham, to whom the promise belonged, was all those who believe, whether Jew or Gentile. In another letter, Paul put it this way in Galatians 3, 7-9, he said, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham's children do what he does. They believe the promises. And we must add to this that according to Paul and to Jesus in John 8, the way you become a believer like Abraham is not from any effort on your part or any power in this world, but it is through the regenerating work of the Spirit of God in your heart. What Paul calls the circumcision of the heart and what Jesus called being born of the Spirit, new life from the Spirit. So, for instance, Paul said this in Romans 2, 28 through 29. He said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. Now, Jesus said basically something very similar to the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3, 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's not merely those who are born into the physical line of Abraham and are physically circumcised who are the true children of Abraham but those who are born of the Spirit and circumcised of heart thereby. And then, of course, they show it outwardly by following in the footsteps of Abraham. Through the Spirit's work in their hearts, they trust in God to keep his promises, just like Abraham did. And then they walk in obedience to God's commands. Oh, not perfectly. Abraham was a sinner and so are we. But truly, like Abraham did. This is why Jesus told the Jews. You see, your behavior contradicts your claim to be Abraham's children. As he put it, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you, The truth that I have heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. Their unbelief in Jesus' words, their wicked intent to kill him showed they they had not truly been circumcised of heart by the Spirit and so were not truly the offspring of Abraham as they thought and claimed to be. Instead, Jesus went on in the rest of verse 41. He said, you are doing the works your father did. Now, once again, Jesus told these Jews that their actions revealed that they had a different father from Abraham. Those who practice unbelief and murder were not the children of Abraham, but of someone else. But as you can see, he still leaves the identity of their true father a mystery. But by this time, the Jews are riled up. And they respond to Jesus' suggestion that somehow they are not Abraham's children with abiding vitriol and a condescension. And you can see it there in verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now that statement, we were not born of sexual immorality, it's probably a vicious personal attack at Jesus, right? Word had got around about Jesus, at least a little bit. They had most likely become aware of the fact that Jesus had been conceived prior to his mother's marriage to Joseph. 
Now, of course, we know from the gospel records that this was because Jesus was conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit while she was a virgin. But most people who found out that Mary was pregnant before her marriage to Joseph probably thought it's the result of sexual immorality. And if this is what the Jews are referring to, they're basically taking a, a cheap shot at Jesus, aren't they? You're questioning the legitimacy of our birth? Suggesting that we aren't really children of Abraham, but of another father? What about your own birth? At least we weren't born as the result of sexual morality. That's what he's saying. When they went on to arrogantly dismiss Jesus' claim that they really weren't children of Abraham, they basically say this. Oh, not only are we children of Abraham, they said, but more than that, we have one father, even God. Now, this is true in one sense. God had repeatedly described his relationship with Israel, his old covenant people, in paternal terms. He was Israel's father in the sense that he had created them and he had taken them as his covenant people. So, for instance, you hear things like this in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32.6, Moses said to the Israelites, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Or the Lord himself famously instructed Moses in Exodus 4.22-23, said, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So yes, there is a sense in which it was true. Israelites, like these Jews, had God as their father in that broad sense. However, while not denying the fact that God was their father in, this, in that sense that those Old Testament texts describe, Jesus pointed out that Again, in a more fundamental sense, perhaps the only sense that really mattered, God was not their father at all. So he said in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. I mean, this argument, again, it's so simple. If these Jews truly had God as their father, such that they knew God and loved him like their forefathers Abraham and David had done, then they would have recognized that Jesus was God's son and loved him too. The fact that they didn't believe that Jesus was God's son and didn't love him for it showed that they never really had a relationship with God as their father. Once again, the condition of their hearts and then the resulting actions in their life revealed the true nature of their spiritual condition and of their relationship with God. Then in verse 43, Jesus asked and answered the question that I posed at the beginning. He said to these Jews, why do you not understand what I say? And then here's the answer. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, the translation, because you cannot bear to hear my word, that reflects an interpretive decision because the Greek just straightforwardly says, because you cannot hear my word. That's how the New American Standard Bible translates it. Jesus simply said these Jews were unable to hear his word. That's the force of the Greek. Now, of course, we know, though, that it wasn't that they were physically unable to hear his word or that they were physically unable to understand the words that were coming out of his mouth. He's saying that they were spiritually unable to accept it. And that's probably what the ESV is getting at here when it translates it, you cannot bear to hear my word. In other words, the reason these Jews didn't understand the truth of Jesus' words so as to believe in him was because of the moral disposition of their hearts. Their hearts were so corrupt, 
so controlled by sinful thoughts and desires that the truth and righteousness of Jesus' life and teaching evoked their displeasure, their hostility. By the way, this is not just true of these Jews here in this text. It's, It's not like they were an especially bad case. But most people aren't like that. No, the Bible describes the natural condition of every person's heart this way. That is, apart from grace, apart from Christ. You you go back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where it offers this assessment of humanity as a whole on the earth at that time. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The similar assessment is given later on in Psalm 53, in David's day, verses 2 through 3, where it says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul describes our natural state in Colossians 1.21, where he is speaking to Christians, but he's reminding them of what they were like before they were saved, before the Spirit worked in their heart. And he says, And you once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Again, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, he did the same thing again. He said to those Christians, For we, including himself in there, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You see, this is why, left to ourselves in our natural condition, no human being is going to accept the truth of God revealed in Scripture. No human being can because of the moral disposition of their hearts. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It takes the Holy Spirit. One more text, Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh, the fleshly mind, the mind of a person who is in their sinful nature, unregenerate, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So Jesus told these Jews, the reason they didn't understand what he said was because they could not hear his word. They couldn't bear it. And the reason they could not hear his word is because, as we know from all these other texts, In their natural condition, their hearts were spiritually dead, in bondage to sin, and therefore hostile to the true and righteous character of Jesus and what he was saying to them. Theologians call this moral inability. The depravity of a man's heart, a woman's heart by nature, makes him unable to do good in his natural state, at least before God. Now, after establishing that this was the spiritual condition of the Jews that he's talking to, Jesus finally told them who their real father was. And it must have exploded upon their ears like a bombshell. Verses 43 and 44, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Yes, Jesus believed in the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, obviously, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not talking here when he says you are of your father, the devil, of some kind of biological sonship, right? He's speaking about sonship in the same kind of functional way that we saw before. That is, your actions reveal your true paternity. You know who your father is by 
seeing that you do what he does. An, an example of this positively is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 40 through, 4 through 45. Jesus told his disciples, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You will be sons of your Father if you do what he does. Obviously, Jesus is not talking here about biological sonship. He's speaking about sonship in this functional way. And here, in our text, he tells these unbelieving Jews that by rejecting his truth and seeking to kill him, they show themselves to be sons of the devil who has been lying and murdering from the beginning. Think Genesis 3. So by their rejection of Jesus' true words, by their intention to murder him, these Jews show that they are still in their natural state, spiritually dead, in bondage to sin, hostile to God and his truth and his righteousness, devoid of the Holy Spirit, devoid of the new spiritual life that the Spirit, Spirit provides. And so instead, like the devil, they're acting according to their own corrupt nature. He's a he, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. And you're doing the same. You're acting out your own nature. And your nature is corrupt. In this way, you see, they were not Abraham's children, let alone God's. And this explains why they responded to Jesus the way they did. As Jesus put it in the last three verses of our text, you look again at verses 45 through 47. He says, But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe in me? And here's the explanation. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Do you see his point? He's saying to these Jews, even though none of you can prove that I've committed any sin, you still don't believe in me. Why? It's because I tell you the truth and you cannot accept the truth because of your spiritual condition, because you are not of God. Now that terminology of God and not of God it almost certainly speaks to the condition spiritually of their souls. Those who are not of God have not been born of the Spirit of God. So they're willing and able, they're unwilling and unable to believe and obey the truth because they're still spiritually dead. Those who are of God have been born of, their, of the Spirit. And now they have ears to hear. They have a soft heart, eyes to see. And they're able to accept the truth. And what Jesus said of these Jews, by the way, could be said of everyone who does not accept Jesus' words, now recorded in the scripture, does not believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God. The reason they do not believe is that they are not of God. But their hearts are still in their natural state, spiritually dead, enslaved to sin, and therefore hostile to God and his righteous and true words. Unless they are born again, unless the Spirit of God takes out their heart of stone and gives them a new heart, as Ezekiel promised, unless he sanctifies them on the inside by the washing of regeneration, Titus 3, their hearts will remain hard, unreceptive to the truth about Jesus. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what does this mean for us today? Well, first, you know, why did John record these things for his Christian readers? Well, it has to be intended to help them, to help us as believers to understand the hostile response to Jesus that believers see and experience in the world. 
The reason so many people, brothers and sisters, reject the truth about Jesus revealed in the New Testament and are even at times very hostile to it is because they are not of God yet, but are, as Jesus put it, quite provocatively, children of the devil, whose hearts, like his, are so bent upon sin that they are unable to accept what is right and true. As Jesus said to the Jews in verses 43 through 44, so he could say it of any unbeliever, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Or verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, knowing that doesn't make us proud and self-righteous. Well, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like those people who reject your name. Scripture is clear. We were all in that condition before God graciously intervened in our lives by his sovereign power and made us alive by the power of his spirit so that we repented and believed in Jesus Christ. As it says in John 1.18, so powerful, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is why Paul said, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because the Lord deserves all the credit for our conversion. But it's important that we understand that the reason people respond to the truth about Jesus Christ at times with unbelief and even hostility is because of the depraved condition of their hearts. It's important to know that so that we don't succumb to the temptation to think that there must be something wrong with this old truth. We have to adjust it. We have to trade it out for a better message that will elicit a more favorable response. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And he warned us in chapter 2, verse 14 of that same letter that the natural man does not accept it because he is not able to understand it since it is spiritually discerned. There's nothing wrong with the truth of Jesus, the problem is with the hearts of the people who reject it. It also helps stabilize our souls from fears and doubts when we suffer rejection and even hostility by people for proclaiming the truth about Jesus from the scriptures. Because we're reminded this is the natural response of people who are not of God. Their unbelief, their hostility even toward us for proclaiming the truth about Jesus doesn't speak to something personally wrong with us, although we might be the object of personal attacks. And of course we are sinners. But listen, they responded to Jesus that way. And he was a perfect man. God come in the flesh. They responded to his apostles that way. So we ought not wilt under the disapproval and the denunciation of our message by unbelievers. Indeed, Jesus instructed us to do quite the opposite at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Remember what he said? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Finally, Knowing that the reason people reject the truth about Jesus is the fallen condition of their own souls reminds us that as Christians, oh, it is so vital for us to pray for God to change the hearts of people. You remember Acts 16, 14, Lydia's down by the river listening to Paul preach and it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul had been said by Paul. Unless God does that with those that we speak the gospel to, they, they just won't believe. No persuasive arguments, no evangelistic methods, no deeds of kindness are going to win them to accept the truth about Jesus unless the Spirit of God takes out their heart of stone, 
gives them a new heart, eyes to see, ears to hear, so that they will be able to believe. And so, brothers and sisters, we evangelize, yes, but not without praying for God to regenerate the hearts of those who hear our message, to bring them forth, as it were, by the word of truth. By this, but this text also has something to say to the unbeliever as well. It explains the reason for their unbelief. It gives them, first of all, a more sober and realistic assessment of their spiritual condition. It makes it clear to the unbeliever that it simply will not do for them to think of themselves as in some kind of spiritually neutral position, able to objectively assess various religious claims, such as what the New Testament says about Jesus. Nor does it allow the popular notions that, yes, human nature is tainted by sin, but it's not so corrupt that it's unable to understand and believe the truth on its own. Just maybe needs a little help from God. In this passage, Jesus reflects what is the consistent biblical teaching that in man's natural condition, he's so corrupt that like, like the devil himself, lying and hatred come naturally. While they cannot abide truth and righteousness. Jesus could say to the unbeliever, as he did to the unbelieving Jews in this passage, it's very sobering. You are of your father, the devil. You cannot hear my word. Because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Now the purpose of saying those things is not to make unbelievers feel really bad about themselves or that God must hate them and not want anything to do with them. They're, they're like the devil to God. No, 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 no. Rather, quite the contrary. It is precisely because of his compassion toward unbelievers because he does not delight in their eternal ruin, that he speaks to them of the true condition of their heart, so that they might see their desperate need of him to forgive them and to rescue them from not only the penalty, but also the power of their sin. And friend, the good news is that Jesus is willing and able to do that for any sinner who by his grace will simply come to him in faith as he draws them. This is why Jesus, the eternal son of God, left the glory of heaven and entered into our world as a man, the man Jesus Christ. It was out of love for ruined sinners. Remember the old hymn, ruined sinners to reclaim? Hallelujah, what a savior so that he might offer himself up as a substitutionary, an atoning sacrifice when he hung on that Roman cross to pay for the sins of everyone who would trust in him. So that by simply believing in him, they might be forgiven and reconciled to God forever. As John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, sinner, if you haven't done so already and you're here this morning, believe in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world. Trust in him to take away your sins through his death on the cross and to give you eternal life as he promised. But perhaps you're an unbeliever here this morning and you think, you know, this is all just far too negative an evaluation of my spiritual condition. It doesn't accurately describe where I'm really at. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, look, I'm not sure I believe what the New Testament says about Jesus to the extent that I understand it. But I'm certainly not like these Jews rejecting Jesus and wanting to kill him. Well, first of all, perhaps that's true. But either it's because the Spirit of God has already begun to work in your heart. Perhaps that's why you're here this morning, stirring a healthy discomfort in your soul about your spiritual condition, making you curious about Jesus. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Perhaps he's drawing you this morning. Or, as I suspect it may be the case, 
perhaps your lack of hostility toward Jesus is explained by the fact that the Jesus that you think you know is really a Jesus of more of your imagination than the one revealed in the New Testament and that you haven't looked closely enough at what the New Testament says about him and thought about what his words would really mean for you. I would suggest that the more you actually look into what the New Testament teaches and consider its implications for your life, the more you will find your heart either becoming offended and thinking it's unsavory. You know, like these Jews who thought they liked Jesus. And the more he talks, the more they hate him. Or what will happen is you will find yourself increasingly awed and humbled by this man. Because you know in your soul what he's saying is true. Once again, if you're not a believer, all the more reason for you to take up your Bible, read it carefully, thoroughly, see what it actually says. Don't just take my word for it. Pray that if the God who is revealed in these pages is really there, that he might reveal himself to you as you read his word. The eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus' life recorded in the New Testament reveal him to be a perfect man. And yet, he was still, and still is, rejected and reviled by so many. John 8, 37-47 tells us why. It's because man in his natural state is far worse than he thinks. Human nature is so corrupt that like the devil himself, it cannot tolerate truths and the righteous words that Jesus spoke. Knowing this sober assessment offers wisdom to all who will accept it. May we take it to heart and learn from it this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time in your word this morning. Your word, it wounds us and heals us, it stings our souls, but also sings within us. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear to anyone here this morning who is yet dead in their sin. Bring them to life through the Spirit. And those of us who are believers, strengthen our faith, encourage us, give us wisdom through these words, and help us to walk more worthy of Christ, to walk in wisdom and truth this morning both for our good and for your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.